0: Although well, I've seen some scripts, I know the words weren't spelled right. There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important.
1: Hey, you want to get on the train here or you want to ruin another take, huh? It's
0: too to Read, Will. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film.
2: Man, I don't drop character
1: till I've done the DVD commentary. You want to eat the writer? Be my guest. That will leave you to explain how else your character is supposed to get
0: to Bremen.
3: Welcome back to another episode of the In the Mouth of Darkness chatcast. I am your host, Brad Gullick's In the Mouth Dork, and it is just me today alone in the Dork Cave. Uh, but don't worry, I will soon be joined by Dan Gilroy, the writer director behind Velvet Buzzsaw, Nightcrawler, Roman J. Israel Esquire. Uh, yeah, an amazing filmmaker and. You know, like last week with Mark Duplass, Ray Romano, and Alex Lehman, I'm uh, pinching myself uh, that we got these guys onto the podcast. Uh, incredibly, incredibly lucky. This one's a weird one, too, because I did not think... Uh, well, well, here, let, let's be honest. Let's be honest. This was originally not the plan. Uh Lisa and I were at the Sundance International Film Festival, and we were invited to cover the red carpet. And we will have snippets from those micro-interviews at the back half of this episode, where we talked to Rene Russo, uh, Natalie Dyer, um, Billy Morganson. And it was just like quick, you know, 60 seconds, 120 seconds sound bites of, what these actors thought about the film that they were premiering at Sundance before it showed on Netflix. And yeah, we were supposed to talk to Jake Gyllenhaal and Dan Gilroy there as well, but it was a pretty swamped red carpet. And here's In the Mouth of darkness alongside Fox News, TNT, YouTube, the AV Club, you know, the real heavy hitters of uh, entertainment industry. And yeah, time ran out and the red carpet event was cut off before either Jake or Dan could get to the ITMOD mic. That's okay, that's cool, that's fine. Not at all sad or resentful about that, especially since Netflix went way out of their way to make sure that Dan got some time with us. And yeah, uh, that's what we have here. It's a phone interview. So you know what that means. Uh, Skype doesn't sound as great as it does right now. But deal with it. It's good content. I think you'll appreciate the conversation. And yeah. Um, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, while you're listening to Dan and I chat, I'll be here in the door cave, pinching myself vigorously. Uh, So put that in your uh, mental mind box and uh, contemplate it for a little bit. Anyway, here we go, here's Dan, I'll meet you back after that, Uh, it's about uh, 10, 15 minutes, I can't remember, something like that. So enjoy, take care guys. Hi Dan, how are you today? I'm doing great, how are you? Same, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me I really appreciate it It's a pleasure So I I kind of wanted to start with a quote That leads off your uh, press notes About how you said uh, I want this movie to do for the art world What Jaws did for swimming So, I mean, why do you want to transform An art gallery into a place of dread? Because I feel
2: that there's a reason. Goes swimming for sharks, that goes beyond fear. It's something, something that's respectful. It's not just something that, that, that's a nebulous concept without any value. And I feel that the contemporary art world has become so over-commodified that we've lost sight that there's a power to art. And, and that was my way of pushing an extreme of emotion that one might get from a piece of art, but really the basis of it has to do with the idea that artists invest a piece in their soul and their work and we should never forget it. And mm. that art is more than a commodity. That was the
3: essence of what I was saying. Mm. You know, when I watched the film at uh, Sundance, the the first thing that popped in my mind was the story of Henry Darger. Were you, are you familiar with him at all? I am,
2: I am conversant with Henry Darger, and I'm also conversant with the uh, School of Art Brute, which is outsider art. Henry Darger was one of a number of, uh, certainly he's one of the more famous ones, but a number of half dozen or so famous outsider artists. And it, he, you know, it's just the idea of like, somebody dying and leaving behind an unfound trove of art, and that, that was definitely a part of the script.
3: And, and it's not an uncommon story in the world of outsider art, but Henry Darger was certainly I was aware of. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a, a brutal story in, in so many aspects. And, like, that brutality... Yeah, it, that it comes through in your film. Like it, There's there's um, a, a, f- a fun or a humorous tone to Velvet Buzzsaw, but underneath it all, it feels very ferocious.
2: Well, you know, if you go to the character of the Outsider artist, he's in art movie, he's working through horrific childhood trauma, mm-hmm. and his art becomes this per- very personal cathartic experience to work through trauma, which again... It is really my way of saying that art, art is a, art is a hallowed place where, where where demons and angels lurk, and and and, and in our film.
3: Well, like, like, talk about that a little bit. I mean, how do you know when you're, you're, like, when you're perfectly on that line? How do you know when you're not going too far into one tone or another? Well,
2: you know, test audiences are invaluable. Mm. Section. If the, if the mood is too light, you'll get nobody afraid. them So you dial it in, scene by scene, moment by moment. Very much work.
3: Mario Beltrami. Mm. I, let's talk about Beltrami's score there You know, it's uh, it, it it doesn't necessarily telegraph uh, What's coming up But it does ride The scenes quite well and What's the inspiration behind uh, That score, that particular score? I would say that The
2: beginning cue was, was I don't know if it was inspired but we were Certainly working, Marco, the opening Cue with the animated credits was was to tell the audience that it's a mixed genre film, so there's dark undertones and currents, but at the same time it's got sort of a, a wacky playfulness about it. And and he, Marco, is planting a flag right up front with the audience with that score. You can laugh and be afraid of this movie. That's where we're going to be taking you. Mm. So so and I and there are times also like when we first meet the defense,
3: You know, the, your your film. I feel like there's a lot of cinema right now that is satirical, that has this angry edge to it. Uh, you know, I I think a lot about Sorry to bother you when I think about Velvet Buzzsaw as well. You know, where I'm laughing, but then I wonder, right. should I be laughing? And am I also on being attacked here, like my own uh, actions?
0: That might
2: have been the case in Nightcrawler I was I was certainly I was I was condemning us more than I was condemning Lou who mm. I sort of saw as an animal and, and beyond sort of moral judgment but I was judging the people who watched the images that Lou took in this film I'm not
3: I think I might be taking it uh, a little personally as a, as a film critic, as somebody who obsesses over movies. I see a little bit of, my, of myself in Morph.
2: public success or non-public success. Didn't have a big opening weekend.
3: The idea that criticism today is so much geared to like a soundbite or a tweet, the film conversation and conversation in general has been reduced so much. It has,
2: and that's unfortunate. It's the same with news. uh,
3: Right. So when, you know, Morph encounters this new unknown art, you know, he now has to have a much longer conversation with it. Of course, it also wants to talk back to him and that might not be a great thing. So, I guess, like, the, the big question for me is, for you, like, why are you having this conversation today, this, this you know, commerce versus, um, you know, uh, art itself? Where, where, why are you having it in 2019?
2: So, I don't start out with the idea first of what the message will be. Mm-hmm. I try to come up with ideas that, that have relevance as vehicles for themes. So, I came up with the idea of a thriller set in contemporary art world. What I liked about it is I had not seen any big narrative film set in the contemporary art world. So it felt fresh. That was the first thing. The second thing was that of putting a satirical edge to it sort of allowed me to to, 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 to make it get copier and kitschier and campier and more fun. But but the idea of, of the contemporary art world having lost its way where 25, like so many other forms of entertainment, which is really what it is, uh, when 25 of the top contemporary artists account for over half the sales, there are so many... New voices that will never get heard because there's not the shelf space or the wall space. There's 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 no galleries that will show because galleries are obviously making money. You can make more money with branded artists. So I'm just interested. Once I came up with the idea of, of addressing the theme that is relevant to me, which is an appreciation of art, almost on a spiritual level. That that art is art is a very powerful force in our lives, and I feel in contemporary
3: world is after the movie business. well, we've lost sight of, of it being something more than a commodity. Mm. And do you think that uh, your audience is ready to hear that message and have that conversation themselves? Well, I like to think with a mixed genre film, you're
2: talking to a number of audiences. So, you know, we, have a, we, have a, we, we, we are a thriller and we certainly, I think, have the, the cred in terms of scenes and, and visual kinetic imagery to have fun so if you like thrillers you will be hopefully you will be responding on that level if you're a contemporary art fan you'll respond that level if you like Jake Gyllenhaal doing doing a wild character where you'll so I believe I believe that we're hopefully
3: hitting different boxes with this film. Mm-hmm. Well, you definitely have gotten another a fascinating performance out of Jake. He's so good as Morph, uh, and so different than you know w- what he did in Nightcrawler. What is it about your relationship with him? Why is he uh, such a good fit for for you in your films? One I consider to be one of the finest actors alive. So 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 on a talent level, I'm attracted to him. On a on an artist level, he's utterly fearless and willing to try anything. So when
2: you throw him the part of a of an elitist contemporary bisexual art critic, he just goes, "That sounds really interesting to me. I want to try something. That sounds like a really unique character." He's willing to try things that are that would be that on the surface look unorthodox. Yeah. And I really learned that on Nightcrawler. You know, Nightcrawler has done well, and it all makes sense now. But there was a time we were starting out. It was, Protagonist Unlikable No backstory uh, uh, Message at the end That's really a cautionary tale And celebrates Like his malfeasance In a way But really trying To say like Watch out it, it, He's willing to try things And I'm, I'm at a point Now in my life Where I am trying things And I like working With somebody Who's, who's, who's a risk taker mm-hmm. As well as talented,
3: obviously with is. Alright Dan Thank you so much uh, I really enjoyed Velvet Buzzsaw I'm looking forward you, to you uh, Teaming up with Jake Gyllenhaal again And whatever else you bring And we're back. What do you think, guys? I really appreciated this conversation with Dan, obviously. I do believe that this conversation brings a lot of context to the film, and I don't think I would have appreciated the movie as much as I do without this conversation. So I hope if you've already seen the movie on Netflix, or if you're about to watch the film on Netflix, that this uh, chat brought a little aid to your thought process. I know it did for me. Um, Velvet Buzzsaw uh, <laughs> is, you know, it's a trip of a movie. Um, Do I like it as much as Nightcrawler? Uh, Let's not even have those conversations. I think comparisons like that often do a disservice to the product that we are consuming in the moment. No, of course I don't like it as much as uh, Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler is a masterpiece, but those don't come around very often. I do think that Velvet Buzzsaw uh, is a hell of a watch and Jake Gyllenhaal is a a beast in this movie. It's one of my favorite performances from him, and I I really do dig what Dan is going for uh, conceptually uh, in 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 the movie. And um, you know, there's some low hanging fruit there, but I think uh, Velvet Buzzsaw. Who was it? Tasha Robinson recently guested on the Slash Filmcast to discuss this film with the gang. And she mentioned how she watched this movie alongside Roger Corman's Bucket of Blood. Yeah, that's a double feature that makes sense. And I think you watch those two movies together and you're really going to love Velvet Buzzsaw. And I need to do that ASAP, uh, because, hey, Dick Miller just recently passed, and we got to pour one out for that guy, uh, because, you know, the Oscars certainly forgot him, but not us ITMOD listeners, right guys? Okay. Okay. I want to share a few of those quick, brief conversations that we had on the red carpet at Sundance with uh, Rene Russo, Natalie Dyer and Billy Magnuson. Um, I'm going to start off with Billy uh, and then we'll move into Natalie and end on Rene. Uh, the fact that I didn't just faint and collapse into the arms of Rene Russo or at the feet of Rene Russo is a miracle. I have loved her ever since I first saw her in the Emilio Estevez movie, Free Jack. That film is rad as hell. Of course, you know, she would then grow into Lethal Weapon 3. Oh, my God. uh, And has done so many amazing movies since then, including Nightcrawler and including Velvet Buzzsaw. Um, I mean, she's she's. Awesome and uh, absolutely rad in this film as well. So, here you go. Um, you know, I'm on a red carpet. I'm stuck in between a bunch of people. There's lots of chatter on in the background. We've never done this kind of thing on Itmod before, but hopefully we'll do it again. And uh, we're always learning and growing, guys. So, uh, stop being defensive, Brad. This is super cool. Let's go back to Sundance. I know it was a couple months ago. And here from Renee, Natalie, and Billy. Why is this conversation of commerce versus
1: art happening now? Well, I think uh, what we uh, love in life more than anything... Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. Um, I think... uh, This is actually a really wonderful question. What we value now has changed, and I think it's the illusion of value that uh, we put... God, I wish I could articulate this better. Uh, putting value in the wrong place, and I think r- once we've re- regained balance on like what's actually important in life, like we'll be in a better place. And this, I think, this shows the absurdity of putting value of value on idiotic things. Do you? Think we do con- that with so many things in this world, uh, without a doubt. Yeah. But do you think consumers are ready to have that conversation? I think y- absolutely. I think marketing. Is so strong in our nation. I think it's so loud we can't have the conversation. You know, the the big company or big uh, idea or promotions are more important than actually communicating with people. Sure, it's like just take it down your throat. This is this is important because mm-hmm. it's in your face mm-hmm. instead of actually taking your time and smelling the roses and be like, oh, actually this this beautiful field is more important than any material thing I've ever had oh well, I look forward like to like our uh, ocean like our yeah. ocean's more important yeah. our forest than our fucking yeah. car yeah I agree yeah I agree. well I'm looking forward to the emotional response I get from Velvet Buzzsaw. me too I'm excited yeah. to see it yeah
3: well enjoy thanks for the good question oh you're welcome yeah yeah, yeah. I uh, want to know, what is it about this team that is so infectious? You know, We're all super excited to see everybody come together for this movie.
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, just being in it, like, doing press today
2: and being all in the same room and watching everybody answer questions. You know, there's such a, a nice, lovely, funny camaraderie, which is what matters, especially on a film that's kind of dark. Mm-hmm. It's nice to have people like Stranger Things for me it's like the same way where it's like the, the material might be dark but what happens beyond the scenes so supportive and funny and loving and you have the levity there so I think everyone has like, such a good sense of humor about filming such a dark thing but that's what makes it really special and
3: well I look forward to seeing you all get together on this movie thank
2: you, thank you. Thank you. Hi, my pleasure. Thank you.
3: Hi, Renee. Thank you. Um, art versus commerce. Why do we have to have this conversation right now?
2: Objective way. Why do we? I think because I have a friend who's an artist, and she feels left out. She feels like there's no room. That there are a few people that basically set the stage for okay, what's good and what isn't, and she's not really in it. It started out sort of as a, of, of a movement that was provoking, and it's kind of turned into. Ridiculous money and it, really it crowds artists out. Really I think that Danny really wanted to speak for artists. So I, I love that's him for book. that. Mm-hmm. Especially for What's my friend who can't, sure? you I know. Buy buy so, so that you know, if have your galleries, your art critics, your museum you know, you curators, you now and now they, now they they say, that's good, and we're going to make this big, make money on it, then at least so many other people out.
3: Well, I'm excited for the conversation. Look forward to it. It's a
2: good conversation, and Danny's much more articulate.
3: Well, I'm waiting. Believe me, he's good. Like, you'll get good stuff
2: race no no great thank so you thank you so hard
3: Oh man, just listening to that stuff uh, gives me uh, a a strange sensation all over. Uh, uh, I I think I'm blushing right now having just uh, heard Rene Russo talking to uh, your lowly mouth dork. That's crazy to me. Now, you can tell from those brief snippet questions that I was trying to formulate a thought there about art versus commerce and get to the heart of what I believed Velvet Buzz saw to be about. And I think, you know, our Dan Gilroy conversation confirmed that. But I was trying to put an article together based on one minute conversations. And that was a challenge. And thankfully, Netflix came to the rescue and uh, provided a a much longer conversation with Dan. So my thanks to them once again. And I'm about to leave you here. uh, But before you do, wait, what? I have a couple bonus red carpet interviews that I couldn't make Work for a full It Mod episode. But since we were including the conversations with Billy, Natalie, and Renee uh, on this uh, Dan Gilroy interview, I thought, hey, let's just make this a full on Netflix episode and celebrate another film that they currently have streaming on their service The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, written and de- well adapted by Chiwetel Ijiofor, directed by Chiwetel Ijiofor, and based on the book of the same name by William Kumquamba. Uh, You know, okay, again, let's go back to Pinching Brad because here I am speaking to Chiwetel Ijiofor. Uh, I I mean, like, I can't even think of one movie that, that I adore in his filmography above all others, but I'll just name a few, right? Obviously, 12 Years a Slave, Best Picture winner, amazing film. He's the bad guy in Serenity for the fanboy crowd, and he's in one of my favorite underrated crime films, uh, Red Belt, uh, written and directed by David Mamet. If you haven't seen that movie, you need to, because it's Chiwetel Ejiofor versus Tim Allen, and it's amazing. <laughs> uh, so... The boy who harnessed the wind. This is an amazing story about uh, a young William Kamkwamba who was, you know, uh, living in Africa. His village was suffering from a terrible famine, a famine created by, as Chiwetel will say, economic circumstances. Yes, there was a drought. Yes, there were massive floods. It destroyed the crops. But then, you know, the the government that was controlling the region was hiking up grain prices and making it impossible possible for people to make do w- while they were waiting for their crops to take hold and they were not taking hold uh, and William Kamkwamba uh, he couldn't even afford to go to school his parents could not uh, give the didn't have the means to pay for the tuition so he didn't have access to the libraries but he knew in that library there was a book that was going to help him and his family out in this situation and it was called using energy and he he, you know, eventually got his way into this tiny ramshackle of a library, was able to gain access to that book, and with the knowledge from that book, built a windmill that powered um, uh, the pump for the well that powered uh, the irrigation for these crops, so that they could survive. I, you know, I sit in this door cave and I am surrounded by novels and uh, comic books and DVDs and Blu-rays and I totally take it for granted. And when you watch a film like The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, you realize truly the power that is contained in each one of these uh, items on my shelves. And uh, I don't think I can ever look at my collection of, of memorabilia and books and take it for granted like I did before watching The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. I'm not joking. This movie profoundly shook me when I watched it after these conversations. I wish I had seen it before having this conversation with Chiwetel. Uh, I, I was a weepy mess. It totally reduced me to a puddle. And I think it'll do the same to you. And I would also encourage you, after listening to this episode, to go out and check out William Kamkwamba's Ted Talk Where he describes What he did What he went through To erect that windmill In his village um, So there you go Last conversation of the episode Is with Chiwetel Ijiofor. Uh Yeah, again Pinching, pinching, pinching As I listen um, So where I wanted to start was Yeah you know, you, you wrote the screenplay. I mean, you put your entire being into this story. What caused you to get this book
1: and,
3: and make it your directorial debut?
0: Well, I, the book came out about 10 years ago in 2009, and um, and I was just made aware of it by a friend of mine, you know, who was at the book launch party oh. and, uh, and, uh, and just started to describe it. And so... Um, then I got the book, and um, and just you know, I just I just I was just transported by it. I was absolutely stunned by it. Um, not just because of Williams' kind of inspirational story, but all of the different layerings of the story, all of the things that it that it means in terms of uh, its sort of thematic resonance. I
3: mean, obviously, it's it's a very relevant story to come out today. I mean, what does it mean for you right now to put it out in 2019?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's only growing in its in its relevance, and that was the thing I wanted of the startling things about it you know i mean you know 10 years is not that long ago i guess but it does feel like the conversation about deforestation about climate change and so on and how it impacts people at the kind of pointy end of the stick all these people who are these stressed and sometimes you know these kind of um poorer communities around the world you know who really get, take the brunt of a lot of these decisions you know uh, and that's something that is increasingly coming to the forefront of the conversation even since that time you know Um, And there's just stuff about economics, you know, when I first read the book, it was just after the economic collapse, so 2008, and and so that was part of the conversation, but I think in an even further way, we're still talking about the kind of neoliberal agenda and economics in this way, and what's working, what isn't working. Uh, deregulation you know it's, it was the last essentially economic fully economic famine in the sense that people didn't have food because the price of grain was unregulated everything's going up as the supplies are going down so these conversations are still in the mix they're becoming even more relevant Do you feel that people are ready to listen? I hope so you know, I think that it's uh, I think that things are changing I think that people are engaging more as the, as the levels of the issue get bigger Mm-hmm. And, and people know that at some point this is going to be knocking on all of our doors, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So actually, people like William Kamkwamba are very, very relevant in the world, you know. People who, who are making certain decisions, you know, and are trying to push things in a certain direction. Him out of complete necessity, but we should try and listen to people like William right. Kempumber and understand the choices that he made within the context of that and understand about those dynamics.
3: So in bringing this story to the screen, you have Dick Pope as your cinematographer yeah. and, like, a legend. Yeah, amazing. I mean, what were your conversations with him to capture the visual
0: style of the movie? Well, we just went through everything, you know, um, Dick was just a very, you know, very thorough, you know, I had all of these kind of references, I didn't know if I, you know, I didn't know how much he wanted to engage in that kind of context, how much he wanted to sort of see it for himself, that sort of idea. But he was completely hands-on. We went around to every location, we spoke about every shot, we spoke about every thought, you know. Uh, and also with the added dynamic oh, that I was going to be in see. the film, so yeah, yeah. we just wanted to make sure that scene to scene, we both had we absolutely women. clear understandings like what of what is, we were trying to and do and the nature of what we were doing so that I could play in the scene and not pop out of it uh-huh. in order to, yeah. you know, so can we could just move camera. Or, you know. So there was a whole kind of yeah. thing, but he's an extraordinary collaborator. So and, uh, inspiration visually, like it was Is there something that that you were chasing for the Mean so much. I mean, that was the. I think that was that was the thing. There was such a a broad range of of for me of kind of cinematic references that I, you know, that I love, and that I was kind of sort of I guess bring into bring into the storytelling. But it's almost as if, in a way, I don't want to be too specific about that because because it's it isn't one overarching like uh, influence in the film you know but I think that there are various different sort of energies mm-hmm. that, that are that are, part, that are part of the story but hopefully just one coherent bit uh, of story and I know you're done like with this movie but
3: you still have a lot to do yeah. the release is coming you're showing it you on Sundays here are you hungry
0: to tackle it again another project I, you know I think it was exciting it was you exciting it, was, it uh, was I mean it was, it was the development process was very interesting you know and took quite a long time and, uh, and I think Having that time to really live inside of this project was great. And, and also to have something that I just you know, loved so deeply and so could spend that sort of best part of a decade going back and forth to, and I was traveling back and forth to Malawi and meeting William and his family and really trying to understand and get to meet them. And really I think that kind of level of excitement and connection to something is, is really important to me. I was very lucky to have that on well, I'm excited to watch it. Yeah. Uh, thank you again for talking to us. Thank you. I really you. appreciate it. Well, I hope
3: Chiwetel 4 finds a project that excites him just as much as uh, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind did because he's an amazing director and having now seen the film, like I said, profoundly moved by it. And I want to see uh, Chiwetel direct again sooner rather than later. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. Please let me know what you thought about it. I know it was a little funky with the red carpet interviews mixed with the phone interview with Dan, but I hope you enjoyed the conversations as much as I did. I want to do more stuff like this, and uh, the, 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 the more opportunities that ITMUD receives, hopefully I'll figure out how to present them in new and unique ways on this channel. Um, My thanks to my lovely bride, Lisa Gullickson, who was with me during all of these conversations except for the Dan one. She was snapping photos behind so that we could have amazing Instagram photos. Uh, So please go check us out there and follow Lisa, my wife, uh, the wife dork at Sidewalk Siren on Twitter and Instagram. Go find my other dorks, uh, Darren Smith, at the Disco Dork, uh, Brian Young, at the Turtle Dork, and Billy Dess, at WB Dess. And Billy will be joining me next week when we interview the director and writer of The Man Who Killed Hitler and Then the Bigfoot, Robert D. Krasowski. Kraskowski. Say that right, Brad, Chriskowski. We went to the Alamo Drafthouse Winchester screening of that film. It's totally sold out. Oh, my God. Utterly amazing. And had an in-depth conversation with Bob about his film, the influences behind it. And, uh, yeah, it's not your average Grindhouse movie. So it's available right now. You can stream it. Go do that. Rent it. Buy it. Watch that movie. And then meet us back next week for that conversation. You will not be disappointed. And if you haven't already, watch Velvet Buzzsaw. It's on Netflix. You have no excuse. Watch The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. You have no excuse. It's right there. Just press play. And uh, while you're on Netflix, also watch uh, the Alex Lehman film Paddleton, which we discussed last episode. That is Easily one of my favorite films of the year. And if any film from Sundance has a shot at making the dorkies uh, come December, that one does – Uh, So, yes, please go watch those movies. Watch more movies. So if you want to keep this conversation going surrounding Velvet Buzzsaw and The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, head on over to Film School Rejects where you can read my write-ups of these conversations. Uh, And, yeah, uh, you know, share those, too. That would be cool. Thanks. And if you're enjoying these chatcasts, head on over to iTunes. Look up ItMod Chatcast. Leave us a five-star rating. Leave us a review. Say what you're enjoying about the show. Saying what we could improve. You know, just say nice things because it really does help others find us and broaden our audience. Uh, we're three episodes in. I want to keep this series going. I want more and more ears on it. Spread the word. Retweet. Put us on Facebook, do all that stuff. Snapchat, do people still Snapchat? I don't know. Um, but let the world know about ItMod chatcasts. Uh, and, you know, if I haven't said it already, I'm Brad Gullickson, at MouthDork on all social medias. And until next time, guys, take care.
0: Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone
2: else's dreams?